1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Paul Conti. Uh, he's the author of a book called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. Paul's a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, he completed training at Stanford and Harvard, where he was a chief resident. Then he worked in private practice and served on the medical faculty at Harvard. Uh, he was named one of Oregon's psychiatrists in 2008, uh, first full year of practice, which is another great accomplishment. So looking forward to talking to him. So, Paul, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm happy to be here and to talk with you.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, what's a little bit about your background? What led you in the direction of thinking about and studying trauma?
2: Well, you know, I came to medicine a little bit later than most people. I had a career before medicine, and I think I'd had a reasonable amount of life experience, good, bad, and otherwise, including some of it that incorporated, I think, the, the tragic as well. And I think that set me up inside to, to be in a place of, of real curiosity about people and what makes us tick and what hurts us and what makes us better or makes us healthier and while learning about all of it, I really came to this understanding that I could draw upon the life experience again good, bad, and otherwise and and integrate that with with skills, some of them medical and some of them psychotherapy skills that I could sort of put all of this together and and maybe be able to to help people understand themselves and to help them in ways that you know i really hadn't envisioned and that had a really you know, tremendous appeal to me. And then as part of doing the work, I I just saw so, 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 so many times how trauma impacted people, right? Including myself and how we often weren't aware of the impact. And I think that was the the biggest factor that, you know, if someone came into an emergency room and, you know, they had a a knee injury, you know, for example, at least they knew about it, right? Like they they could say, like my knee hurts or something has happened, right? But often with with trauma thing where, different in ways that were really negative sometimes and really dangerous sometimes without the the person's awareness of what the trauma had done to them. And I think that's what then attracted me to seeing my work very often through the lens of trauma and to wanting to communicate much more about it, you know, hence writing the book.
1: So you did actual therapy sessions with, with many people over the years. Was that part of your role?
2: Sure. I've been a practicing psychiatrist now, well, I graduated from medical school with my goodness, twenty-one years ago. So, yeah, I've been practicing for a long time, and then a lot of what I have done has been psychotherapy. And there's a consulting end of what I do that, while not psychotherapy, calls on some of those skills to to really engage with people where they're at and try and help understand them and the systems around them, which sometimes are family systems, sometimes are other kinds of systems. But yes, I've done a lot of that kind of work over the years. And and it has let me see then the the role of trauma in really just just kind of its tendrils extending through so much of human suffering and unhappiness that I've tried to be a part of addressing.
1: As you worked with people and spoke to them, did you feel that you experienced healing? Like, was it a strange effect of, you know, by teaching, by talking to people, by giving them therapy, that you got therapy yourself somehow?
2: Oh, sure. I think it is absolutely true that if we are able to be helpful to someone else, and that could be in very small ways, like, you know, the the person at the checkout counter who's you know, clearly not having a good day who drops something, right? By smiling at that person instead of frowning at them, or are smiling instead of averting our gaze. Like that's just one example of a very simple and rapid way that we can be helpful to someone else. And it reminds us, reminds everyone who can do that, that there's goodness inside of us. It is innately helpful to human beings to be helpful to other human beings. And and I've been very fortunate to have chosen a career that gives me that, you know, that it's a free and wonderful side effect of doing that kind of work. Do you think
1: most therapists know that? And that's part of the reason they secretly do it is to help themselves?
2: I think a lot of people who go into this particular kind of helping profession, we do have it in our minds that, yes, we want to help others, but we also want to understand and help ourselves as well. And so I think that runs through the field quite strongly. I think the realization that, oh, like how I'm helping myself to a very significant extent, is through helping others that it's not necessarily the lion's share of it. Is it necessarily through like what I've learned or, you know, what I what I've read in textbooks and that sort of thing? But it's just simply the helping of others. I mean, I think that may be an understanding we come to only like through doing it and then having that realization.
1: Hmm, okay. Um, I noticed in your book part of the subtitle is uh, the silent epidemic and you know the past 2 years have been a uh, supposedly a virus induced uh, pandemic when you, you were writing your book did you write it before all this happened and now that what has happened in the past 2 years has happened do you look at your book now in a prescient way or a different way like how do you think it fits into what's been going on the past 2 years
2: I was thinking about that theme right the the idea that trauma is an, an invisible epidemic right because we so often don't see its effects even when the effects are dramatic like someone who believed in themselves and was building a good life and had good friends around them or was you know dating interesting good people to date and taking care of themselves who then sometimes on the other side of trauma is not taking care of themselves and has unhealthy relationships and is maybe now abusing substances and their health is plummeting and has no understanding of why. Right. I mean, this is not uncommon, not at all uncommon in humans. So if you think about the the invisible nature of that, of something that can cause so much harm and not be understood, which is also a reason why it becomes an epidemic, because then it's very easy to pass that on. Right. And it's, for example, it is not true, of course, that everyone who has suffered abuse will then perpetuate abuse, not not by any stretch of the imagination, by not understanding abuse when one has suffered it it makes it more likely that that abuse is passed on so it's just one example of how if we don't understand what's going on in us we generate and perpetuate suffering in ourselves and we're then much more likely to pass that suffering down the road you know, pass it down the line i mean it's it's very very powerful and and, you know, that fits to me. An invisible epidemic is. And that's been in my mind. It was in early drafts of the book, you know, long before the pandemic. You know, I think that there's a coincidental aspect to it. But I also think that the pandemic has generated so much more trauma beyond the, you know, the direct aspects of it, right? It's, you know, it's it's furthered discord in our socio-political dialogue you know animosity mm. and adversarial stances between people that you know it's of course terribly tragic the direct harm that the pandemic has done but i think the indirect harm to our social fabric and even to our sense of safety in the world and and our sense of frustration you know and when people are angry and frustrated and fearful, right? We tend to be very defensive. Like, you know, like people say like, don't be very careful trying to help a trapped animal, right? Because if that animal is desperate, that animal is likely to lash out, right? And to to bite when one's trying to help it. And and like, we're all like that, you know? And if we feel beleaguered and we feel unsafe and we don't know what our horizons are. And, you know, for example, there are entire industries of endeavor where it's extremely difficult for people to make a decent living now. like the entire service industry, for example, then we all we start to feel beleaguered and beset upon. And you know, as we do that, it furthers the effects of trauma. So I think the pandemic has us in many ways, both directly and indirectly. And now we have to pick up and move forward. You know, we don't even allocate the resources, say, for things that we really need as a society. You know, we're not repairing bridges and we're not taking good care of children of people who lost their lives in 9-11, you know, are we really going to pay attention to the, the suffering of people who've lost loved ones or who are living in fear in ways they weren't before? That there's a lot in front of us that if we don't approach in a proactive way, in a way that looks at, hey, what's going on here? And what should we try and do about it? Then I'm worried that, you know, the pandemic may have Um, sort of generated a tsunami that's building upon our pre-existing social dysfunction, which I think largely comes through the lens of trauma and its effects on people, and that we run the risk that 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 is building and building, and we, you know, that the worst of that hasn't hit us yet. I mean, I don't think that's an exaggeration when you think of violence behind closed doors, during the pandemic that do 25% approximately of women across the globe have suffered from domestic violence at one point in time or another that there's been an increase in in domestic violence an increase in substance abuse that like these are all things that are that are with us right now they're with us right now in this moment and if yeah. we don't look at that, then you know we're it's like turning one's eyes the other way when the tsunami is cresting, right? Because well, we don't want to see that it's there. Well, it's 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 going to engulf us anyway, in, unless we we really do something about it.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, something interesting you said is um, when someone's unaware of their own past trauma, they seem to be more likely to perpetuate that trauma and, you know, yell at their family, their other relationships, their children, etc. Why do you think, and why have you observed that when people understand their own trauma, then they're less likely to do that? Maybe it's a silly question. but
2: Well, the things that we don't understand drive us, right? And they drive us in directions that our whole self at our best would not want to be driven, which is why an analogy that I use clinically often, and I use in the book, is the idea that we're in the back seat of the car, right in our life, right? Like, we're not at the wheel, we're not driving. You know that often, you know, it's like there's some evil phantom, you know, that's, that's driving the car and is driving it recklessly and and is scaring us and may hurt other people with the recklessness of the driving, and and like that's where trauma. Leads us if we don't understand and process, then we have a sense of mastery and and that understanding goes back ages in, in psychotherapy, you know it goes back ages that understanding leads us to feeling different, to being different, to making different choices, kind of like anything else in the world. I mean, if we don't understand how to build a bridge well we could probably still throw something together, but you know that thing is likely to fall over, and you know we're going to get killed if we 're on the bridge, so you know we, understanding allows us. To to navigate important things that we can't navigate without understanding, and it allows us to do it safely, right? It allows us to do it safely. So, So the understanding has tremendous impact. I mean, tremendous impact upon our ability to make good decisions in our lives for ourselves and for others, which is how we avoid perpetuating trauma. Right, including perpetuating it in our own mind. So someone who, after trauma, tells themselves their internal dialogue might say a hundred times a day or a thousand times a day that they're worthless, that no one will ever love them, that they'll never find a good relationship, that they can't be a good parent. I mean, you know, this is going on inside of many, many, many. Of us, and that, of course, leads to despair and it leads to anger and frustration, and it leads us to act out against ourselves and others and and it 's like that 's not some esoteric example i mean we see that. hundreds and hundreds of times over if we just observe the world around us as someone who's who's driving very aggressively or someone who's behaving aggressively towards someone else or you know someone who has a good opportunity come up for them and turns their back on it i mean you know this plays out in a a moment-to-moment basis so it's very very real and its impact is very real in ourselves and in the world around us if you like
0: this podcast Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: Yeah, I noticed that, you know, if I'm having a good day, I'm friendlier to the people at the coffee shop and other places right. I go. If I've had a bad day, or if I feel like I've had a bad day and I carry something with me, then, you know, I'm shorter with people and not as nice. And I, I try never to bring it home, but sometimes it happens. So inevitably, what I've learned is if you're nice to somebody, there's a chance that that will be spread by them. And if you're not nice right. to somebody or someone's hurting, they will spread that negativity to other people in their life too.
2: Right. That's right. And and you think about like, that's true of all of us, like what you said of like being nicer to the people in the coffee shop on a day that you feel better. And you think, well, what is that really about? Right. I mean, it's not about making a conscious decision, right. That says I'm having a bad day. I'm going to make this person feel worse and that'll make me feel better. Like we don't do that. Right. So what's actually going on, right. Is when you're having a good day, you're feeling good about yourself, right? There's there's a surplus of goodness in you and you can give some of it away, right? And when you give it away, you feel good because you have it to give away, right? You feel good. You give some of it away. You don't feel less good. Actually, you feel better, right? But on days when you know, we we may feel impoverished, right? From the perspective of goodness, when we're having a bad day, and we feel bad about ourselves and bad about the world, then there's an, an impoverishment from the perspective of goodness, where we don't have any to give away. And so but there's something there's some transaction going on, meaning some communication between humans, and we give something away that's that's not good, right? And, It doesn't make us feel any better about ourselves. So, if if you come at it from the perspective of what's going on in us, right, that taking good care of ourselves, which would mean paying attention to our own traumas, right, to what they mean, to what our internal dialogue is are we taking care of ourselves? Are we getting enough sleep? Do we have good people around us? Are we? eating well, right. This is what builds the goodness in us that allows us to give some of that goodness away. And unlike other things we give away, it's like, Hey, if you give, you know, you give one unit worth of goodness away where you've given some one unit of something good to someone and you get that unit back, right. Or maybe you get even more than that back. And like, that's really the truth of it, but it has to start with us being aware of ourselves, aware of what's going on inside of us which often means understanding the role of trauma in our lives. I mean, it's not true for all of us, but if you think of how much trauma there is in the world, right, acute trauma, car accidents, loss of a loved one, illness, assaults, right, how much chronic trauma there is, chronic denigration based upon age, gender, sexuality, there's so much chronic trauma there's a chronic denigration chronic oh you're less than right that people take in from the world around us and then there's vicarious trauma the trauma that we get from from being so aware of other people's sufferings and you know news these days isn't just news it's not there to inform us right it, it's advertising that we click on more news right so you know there's a, there's a lot of other people's suffering put in front of us and it's wonderful that we have empathy you know most of us as human beings, but that empathy can make us traumatized vicariously through other people's sufferings. And and that trauma can get to the point where it overwhelms our coping skills, and then it changes us going forward. So I'm saying some Pollyanna theme where oh, everything negative know is is like is terrible and you know let's make sure that everyone wins an award and there's no adversity in life like this is not that this is avoiding traumas that overwhelm our coping skills and leave us different and the cutting edge of brain science tells us that right we get it's not it's not pie in the sky it's not a Pollyanna thing to say it's rooted in science
1: how can you help affect people in a better way is just talk therapy really it and everyone needs to be in it? Or does there need to be other mechanisms and other ways for people to get help? How can someone yeah. even understand that they have trauma? Like what, what would happen in their life that may be subtle to them or they may, may not even know or friends or family tell them, hey, what what's going on with you? Why are you doing XYZ? Like how can people identify that they may need to get help, first
2: of all? Right. Absolutely. There's so, so many things that we can do that don't require therapy. I mean, you know, therapy can be very, very helpful and sometimes is needed to get over certain types of trauma or certain aspects of trauma. But to answer that part of the question, there's so many things that we can do. And that's why the, my book is written to be very practical of saying like, here's some very straightforward things to do today, right? And one element of that is to stop and think about what's going on inside of us or in someone else. And, and look, as simple as that may sound, we don't often do that, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've asked a person, what do you think about in the car on the way to work? Or what do you think about, you know, getting ready in the morning? And a person hasn't thought about what they're thinking about, right? And sometimes, you know, what we learn then is the dialogue going on inside of themselves is, is very, very negative, right? So it's like being aware of what's going on Inside of me, right? What are my decisions based on? Am I taking good care of myself? If I'm not, why? If I have a lousy diet, I'm not exercising. What am I saying to myself about that? Am I saying, oh, to hell with it, it doesn't matter, right? Or am I really saying, oh, to hell with me, I don't matter, right? Like, what's going on inside of us and observing ourselves or other people around us? You know, somebody who's behaving a little differently, who looks a little down, who's been different since. That accident a couple of years ago or a couple of months ago, the idea of inquiring with ourselves or with others about what's going on inside of us is an incredibly powerful first step. And, and even though that's so easy to do, right? In a sense, if we just stop and, and introspect and then write down our thoughts or take note of our thoughts or to put words, talk about our thoughts, an example is something that can be done today that saves lives, right? Because when people do that, you know, we learn sometimes about ourselves or about others in ways that can say, get a person to help who really is feeling suicidal. Now, again, that's not always the case, but that happens sometimes where then a person can get help for something that's, that's been going on inside of them and can lead them to the point of even suicide without them ever having broached it, not just with other people, but sometimes without ever having broached what's going on inside of them with themselves.
1: What are some modalities that you've seen are very useful for people to help them work through problems? I've heard of cognitive behavior sorry, C B T cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, EMDR, et cetera, et cetera. What what are some modalities you've seen or is there a hybrid of them that seems to help people more?
2: I think of as the psychotherapeutic modalities, right things like cognitive behavioral therapy, like Cbt right Dbt psychodynamic understanding what 's going on in our unconscious minds. These are examples of arrows in the quiver, right that good therapists have a lot of arrows in the quiver and then can bring the arrows to bear that are most helpful for the person and the situation in front of them. You know the same is true with medicines you know as a psychiatrist. I'm also then therefore a physician and utilize medicine sometimes. So medicines are the same as the psychotherapy tactics, right? We want to have those arrows in the quiver because we want to use those tactics to understand and help people. And, you know, in professional settings, you know that that's what can happen, which is why it's important then if one is seeking a therapist to you know I write about this in the book too, is that person paying attention? are they making eye contact? do they seem interested? Do they seem to have arrows in the quiver they can bring to bear so you know th- those are all things that can play out in in professional settings, which for many of us are very important i mean i've been going to psychotherapy for many, many years and have no intention of ever stopping because it helps me, it makes my life better. You know, if there are big challenges in my life, it helps me navigate them. If stress and trauma from the past is rearing its head, it helps me understand that. So I'm all for psychotherapy. That's not the only realm of helping. So, so again, it brings me back to things that any of us can do of taking stock of what is going on inside of us, thinking about what our life narrative is. What narrative do we have about our own lives? And what do we think about that narrative? Because trauma can make the life narrative change. Right. From a narrative that might have hope in it. You know, I'm a person who can work hard and I can get ahead and I can do good things in the world. You know, that narrative can change to, oh, nothing ever works out for me. And, you know, I'm cursed and, you know, no one ever cares about me. And that can change even without a person knowing it. Right. And like, think about the, the magnitude of that statement. Right. That can change the, someone's life narrative without the person knowing it. And again, I've experienced this in my own life that, you know, I lost my brother to suicide when he was 20. And I was in my early 20s. And I mean, my whole set of thoughts about myself, and whether I could navigate the world. And, you know, I mean, I would never thought before, like, maybe I'm cursed, and nothing good will ever happen to me. And, you know, and I felt ashamed that I didn't know that, you know, he was in a place where he could take his own life, like, you know, everything really shifted. And I was fortunate, I was not in medicine at the time, I was fortunate, I had good people around me. And I got to some psychotherapy, that helped We look at all of it. But without that help, I never would have been able to understand the shift in me. So looking at, hey, what is my life narrative? Do I like my life narrative? Do I even agree with my life narrative? Did it change at some point in time or did it change over time? I mean, these are things we can do ourselves. We may decide to get professional help. And if someone is very depressed or having thoughts of harming themselves, and yes, professional help is the way to go, but we can start helping ourselves in advance of professional help very often without professional help. So so I think it's so important to take stock of ourselves to communicate with trusted others. Does that make sense? Does that, that sound reasonable?
1: Well, I've heard that a very large percentage of people, uh, you know, in a survey result said they have no one that they can tell deep things to, i.e. Right. they're lonely and they right. have no one that they can give their innermost thoughts to. So someone like that, if they don't have therapy, I mean, they literally have nowhere to, to go with this. They're in big, big trouble, it sounds like. I don't know that, right? I think the stat is like is incredibly high, especially amongst young people,
2: right? And and I would ask the question then: Think about that statistic, right? That is, is such a sad statistic, right? Because it doesn't have to be that way right? I mean, it's not like we all independently live in the middle of the desert, right? Like we live around one another. There are helping mechanisms around us. When I hear that statistic, part of what I think is many of those people do have somewhere to go. They do have someone to talk to, but they don't know it or they don't think they're worth it, right? Is there a trusted friend? Is there a trusted coworker? Is there a trusted neighbor? Is there a trusted clergy person, right? I mean, most people could walk into you know a religious institution and even if you know you're not you're not part of that faith even you know you could there's a a reasonable likelihood of finding someone to talk to right but you think about how isolated we feel because we're taught to feel isolated and we make stories that tell us that there's no one to talk to and i think that that's very sad that if there is no one to talk to that that person needs to help Finding someone to talk to, right? You know, there are therapy resources that can be accessed and helping resources that can be accessed quickly by almost anyone, right? So, even the idea that the person doesn't have anyone to talk to is part of what trauma does to us. Like, think about that, right? How can one get to that point of saying there's no one I could talk to, right? No one. I mean, how does one get to that point without trauma dictating the internal process that comes to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, I read a book by a woman named Nancy Sherman, and she looked at a concept Uh called moral injury. It was Uh focused in the military, you know. So if you're in the military for years, and you've seen and had to do all these terrible things, it kind of messes up your own internal compass. Just like if you were a prostitute, you know, it it would mess up your ability to have true intimacy, I would think if you did it for too long, or a a traffic court judge or a lawyer. So it, it seems to me that not only do we have these problems of trauma, but people's careers and their lives and their lifestyles are injuring them in ways they might not even imagine and that carries forward as well
2: yeah absolutely right we just go on right i mean think of how many people in healthcare, right how many people have seen that people die you know over and over and over again they've they've seen people they're taking care of die they've seen their suffering they've seen the suffering sometimes in people around them or sometimes they don't see that suffering because those people couldn't even be there for the for the death of the loved one and you know we by and large pay very little attention to that as a society oh and when people have problems in healthcare, we talk about burnout right which, you know, where and how I grew up was an insult, right? So say, oh, that's burnout, right? Instead of how about moral injury in systems that treat human beings as expendable, right? I mean, we could look at it yeah. that way too, right? But we we don't necessarily look at it that way because we run, we, we live in a society that just runs along and runs forward and doesn't think about how the way that we handle life, right, harms so many people. So we don't think very much about the moral injury to people in the military, or to people in the helping professions, or as you said, to the traffic court judge, or, you know, to anyone in society, who's in any position where they're suffering moral injury, you know, we kind of shrug our shoulders, and we move forward, you know, putting very, very, very limited resources, whereas how many resources do we squander, on things, how inefficient is our broken healthcare system? How many of those dollars that are just wasted, absolutely squandered, could help people who need the help, including people who suffer moral injury in the system? It, it really is—I believe—it's outrageous and it's egregious how our our society and our systems handle helping people, including the people in those systems and the resources we squander, and the blind eye we turn to the suffering and the moral injury to others.
1: So when you boil all of this in someone without your training or without your knowledge, they're just, I I guess they're just walking in a fog, they're completely unaware of all these things. Listening to this podcast will help and definitely listen to your podcast with other people. How do people take that first step to get help for themselves if they have no clue what to do, and they don't know any of these things?
2: First step can be again just sitting quietly and taking stock of okay what is going on inside of me right or a first step can be to say to think of who is it that i can talk to right and if the answer is no one to then think again right about really is there no one trusted that i could talk to right because often if one thinks about it again one gets a different answer right and and we'll find a person to talk to, and again, maybe it's a teacher, it's a coworker, it's a family member, it's a neighbor, it's it's a loved one in some form or another, right? Or it's getting a help through therapy, or getting help even if the situation is so urgent, you know, through an urgent helpline, right? It's being able to take stock of what's going on inside, either alone or with another person, and then that can motivate a person to seek helping resources, right? If I don't know that there are any. You know, do I do a search of what might there be around me that I don't know about, right? And just going those next steps. I mean, often what trauma makes in us is also a sort of learned helplessness, right? It's like, I feel awful. There's no one to help me okay, if that's all there is to it, then the next thought is, I feel awful, there's no one to help me. I feel awful, there's no one to help me. And then that will incorporate thoughts of, because I'm not worth helping, because nothing ever goes my way, right? I mean, it's a very slippery slope there, but we can stop that, right? By just deciding that, you know, I'm interested in what's going on inside of me, and I'm interested in things being better, right? That's an incredible first step. And again, there's a huge difference between taking no steps and taking a first step. Right? or even if there's no one i can think of to talk to about anything in this moment right can i show some kindness to someone right can i take a meal or even a smile to you know to the elderly person who's living alone down the street right or the person at the checkout counter it's never true that there's nothing we can do it's never true that there's nothing we can do. Because as we started this conversation with, you can show some kindness to someone else, which reminds us that, hey, there's goodness inside of me. If I've got a little bit to give away, even if I'm just giving it away in a helping hand or a smile, there's got to be goodness in me, right? If there were no goodness, I'd have nothing yeah, to give yeah. away, right? So, so it's even that, I mean, that's a starting point that every single person can take.
1: For most people, should they, do they need therapy their whole life? Do they just need it for a time of crisis? Like, what's been your observation? The healthiest people that do the best. I guess it's two questions in here. You know, how long should someone be in therapy? And I know it's different for everybody, but still. And how do people make sure it sticks and that they actually get better?
2: Right. Well, there's a difference between therapy for need, right, versus therapy to improve our lives. Like, I, I believe wholeheartedly because I've seen the proof of it, right? That therapy across the lifespan is helpful. If you think about a process of reflection upon ourselves and our lives, like how could that be bad? right? So I think good therapy can be helpful across the lifespan, but that's different than, say, therapy for a need, right? Which is very much determined by what is that need? What are the specifics of the situation? I mean, it is not true that when people really need therapy to get over, say, traumatic things that have happened in their lives, that that means they need it for the rest of their life. You know, some insurances will have, oh, you need therapy, or we've decided that you can access therapy. And then there's some you know, there's a, some reflex of oh, you get ten sessions of CBT, which just makes no sense whatsoever to put the arbitrary limits on duration and and route of approach. Like it's as nonsensical as saying, "Well, my car's broken down; we get to use a wrench for an hour." Right? I mean, it makes no sense. So the idea that that that's very individualized and that a person kind of decides and figures that out with the therapist. It's like, that's really how that should go because it is so individualized. But good therapy is focused not just on let's alleviate symptoms. I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the therapy profession who are good. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to denigrate people who are in the profession, but the systems often don't allow people in helping professions across the board in healthcare and certainly in mental health to do the things that they would want to do. In other words, there's a lot of polishing the hood when there's a problem in the engine. But good therapy and a person going to therapy should insist on that, right? Like I can tell the difference between the concept of polishing the hood and actually going to the problem, right? So a person then shouldn't accept if, the work that's being done is not looking to improve understanding, right? To make change that can be durable over time. And sometimes extended therapy or coming back to therapy intermittently, or if there are higher stressors can really help a person. But the idea is that therapy is a process of change. And then we get to keep that change at the end of therapy. And, and like, that's how it should be. And none of us should settle for less.
1: Well, very good. A couple more questions, Paul, we're just about done, but Sure. Um, your book on trauma, is is that a good way for people to start to engage with you, or how can they find out more about your work? Should they listen to podcasts first, or read that book, or what's your recommendation?
2: Sure. I, I wrote the book to be really accessible to everyone. It, it's not an academic text. You know, it's meant to be, you can pick it up and find it engaging, and find it informative, and and, and hopefully, even though sometimes, you know, it can generate some distress if the person is getting in touch with their own trauma, but that, that's part of the point of it, right? Because it's that distress that can be the fuel to making things better. But that aside, it's it's made to be an enjoyable read. And, and I think the, the book is a great way to To start to think about trauma and to think about oneself and the world around us. So, sure, I, I do absolutely recommend the book. There's also a, a website, and it's just Dr. Paul Conti. So, D R and then my name, P A U L C O N T I dot com, that has links to to podcasts I've done and to you know to some other ways of finding more information out. So, between the book and that website, which will link to podcasts and other things that I've done in the, in the public realm, I intend for the book and those links to really be helpful to people. So I hope and wish that that's the case if people choose to access them.
1: Yeah. I've recently gotten a copy of your book. Thank you. So I'm going to be making my way through it. And uh, very well. yeah, thank you for all you do. And for coming on the podcast, I'm really happy that you came and I appreciate all your advice.
2: You're welcome. You're very, very welcome. And thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to respond to the thoughtful questions that you've asked. So so thanks very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and
0: review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.